All right, so in this pivotal chapter in his gospel, John tells the story of what is arguably the Lord's most astounding miracle. Out of all the miracles that Jesus performed, arguably this one in this chapter is the most astounding, and that, of course, is him raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, last week, as we studied verses 1 through 16, we found out that Lazarus was very ill. He's a close friend of Jesus. Jesus likes hanging out with Lazarus and his sisters Martha and Mary whenever he's in Jerusalem. And so he's sick, and he's literally on his deathbed in Bethany of Judea, a suburb of Jerusalem. And where was Jesus while his friend was so sick? Well, the answer is that Jesus was ministering in another little village called Bethany, but this one was over across the Jordan uh, in an area called Perea. As we look at the map, I'll show you. And so Judea is in the brown, and then Perea, um, which is part of modern-day Jordan today, that's in the green. All right, so in the brown area, if you see Jerusalem, it's underlined. Please say amen, so I know you're there. Okay, so just east, northeast of Jerusalem, on the road to Jericho, less than two miles outside of Jerusalem, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, was this little town of Bethany, and that's where Lazarus was on his sickbed. But then if you turn right, and you head over to the green area, just above the Dead Sea, we believe that's where this Bethany would have been. Um, If you see Bethany east of the Jordan, please say amen. Okay, and so that's where Jesus was, somewhere in that area where John the Baptist used to baptize people before he lost his head. And so the distance between the two villages was around 30 to 40 miles. Jesus ministering with his disciples in that green area, Lazarus over in Bethany in the brown area, 30 to 40 miles. If you were in shape, you could walk that briskly in about eight to 10 hours. Now, Lazarus had two sisters who loved him very much. Does anybody remember their names from last week? Yeah, Martha and Mary. And since their brother wasn't getting any better, what did they do? They sent an urgent message to the Lord. This message was short, and it was to the point. They said, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. Lord, the one whom you love is ill. Now, they, the sisters, expected Jesus to drop everything and just take off and get to Bethany of Judea as soon as possible. But instead of that, you guys remember from last week? What does Jesus do after he reads the message? He stays. (laughs) He stays in Perea for two more days. And then him and the disciples went to Bethany of Judea. I'm gonna tell you why he waited in a moment but first, let's read verse 17. So right now, if you are looking at John 11, verse 17, please say amen. All right, here we go. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for how many days? All right, so based on the fact that Lazarus's corpse had been in the tomb for four days, uh, we can come up with this plausible timeline uh, from Jesus's perspective. All right, so the header at the top, Lazarus' corpse, we know from the Bible, was in the tomb for four days when Jesus arrived in Bethany. And so from that, we conclude day one, Jesus in Perea received the message that Lazarus was ill. 
Lazarus died sometime that day. We don't know when. Uh, we think probably, most likely, before Jesus got the message, but sometime that day on day one. Instead of dropping everything and rushing to Bethany of Judea, day two, Jesus remained in Perea. Day three, Jesus remained in Perea. Day four, Jesus arrives at Lazarus' tomb and raises him from the dead. All right, so I'll ask the question again. After Jesus received the message that his friend was ill, why in the world did he delay? Why did he wait before going to Bethany of Judea? Well, here's why. By remaining in Perea for two days, day two and three, it ensured that Lazarus' corpse would have been in the tomb for four days before Jesus arrived. And then, after that long of a period of time, when Jesus raises his friend from the dead, there could be no doubt in anybody's mind that something supernatural had taken place. That's why he waited. As I said last week, decomposition begins to start in our bodies after one to three days, somewhere between one and three days. So Jesus, what Jesus was about to do in raising Lazarus from the dead could not be viewed as a resuscitation of his friend just minutes after he flatlined. No way. Nobody could view it that way. It had to be a genuine miracle of a very dead and decaying body. So is everybody understanding why Jesus delayed, yes or no? Okay, I didn't hear any no's. That's good, we'll move on. This miracle was so astounding, it made what we call the eight miraculous signs in the Gospel of John. Now, do you guys remember those eight? If you don't, by way of review, we'll put them on the screen. Eight miraculous signs recorded in John. Now, did Jesus just do eight miraculous signs? No. If everything that he did was written in a book, it wouldn't, there'd be, you'd need a lot more books. I think John says, the world couldn't hold the books um, if we wrote everything down, or if he wrote everything down. But he did record eight in his gospel. So now what are we doing here? We're starting to understand why John wrote the gospel of John. He wants everyone to see that Jesus turned water into wine. Can anybody here turn water into wine? I don't see any hands. All right, good. Number two, he healed the official son. He was in Cana. The official son was in Capernaum. And all Jesus had to do was speak the words. How many of you guys know Jesus has power in his words? He healed the crippled man. This guy had been crippled for 38 years. And he's lying at the pool of Bethesda. You guys remember that story? Can anybody here heal a guy who's been crippled for 38 years? Okay, he fed 5,000 men, not including women and children, so more like 15 to 20,000 people from, what was it, five loaves of bread and two fish? Okay, number five he walked on water. Can anybody walk on water here? So as this afternoon, go out in your back pool, see how that works out for you. You say, these are fairy tales. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. They were eyewitness accounts of something that happened historically. Okay, so don't let anybody lie to you and say that it's all fables. Here's what I wanna challenge you to do. I wanna challenge you to research it for yourself and see what you come up with. Jesus healed a man born blind. 
today he's gonna raise Lazarus from the dead. And then number eight, my favorite story, I can't wait to get there, he, uh, is the miraculous catch of fish in John chapter 21, after which he tells Peter, feed my sheep. Now, who but God's son could do such amazing things? And ladies and gentlemen, they're all included in John's gospel, and John tells us why. He includes all these in this gospel that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And so right now, if you're looking at verse 18, say amen. Okay, so Jesus comes to Bethany. Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews, i.e. living in Jerusalem or in that area, had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. That's a good thing. But notice it was many of the Jews. That tells us that this family, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, were a popular family. They had a lot of friends. Now, yes, there was hired mourners, and I'm not gonna get into that today. Uh, in that day, in that culture, they would hire mourners to come and play flutes and everything, but these are, a lot of them are just their friends. So they were popular, and they were also prominent. And the reason we know that they were prominent is because in the next chapter, which we're gonna study next week, uh, Mary breaks open a costly flask of expensive ointment. So that costs some money. So we think they're popular, we think they're prominent. Verse 20, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to, and met him, right, just outside of town, she went and met him, but, notice this at the end of 20, Mary remained seated in the house. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was almost there, she took off to greet him, but Mary stayed put. Why did Mary stay in the house? Well, maybe she didn't hear that Jesus was coming, or maybe she was still, after four days, hurt, maybe angry, definitely confused as to why Jesus didn't come right away. They knew how long it would take to get from Bethany of Perea to Bethany of Judea, eight to 10 hours. He didn't show up until day four. <laughs> and so maybe she's just saying to herself, I'm just not ready yet to go see him. Or maybe she's so sad that she needs time to compose herself um, before she goes and sees Jesus. So maybe she's saying to herself, I just gotta stop crying and then I'll go out and see him. See him. Now we're not sure, but we are sure that her sister went to see Jesus first. And I want you to picture this scene, okay? So try to get yourself in the Bible. Try to go back 2,000 years. Get yourself in the sandals. You're there hanging outside the, the, the village of Bethany on the uh, uh, other side of the Mount of Olives, right? Maybe you're leaning up against an olive tree and there's Jesus and the disciples and they're standing just outside the village and here comes Martha. Martha is walking up to Jesus and Martha's eyes are filled with tears. Her heart is absolutely broken. And with that picture in your mind, now look at verse 21. It says, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Was Martha hurt? Was Martha angry? Was Martha confused? Probably. She was probably hurt. We don't know if she was angry. No doubt she's absolutely confused. But here's what I want to emphasize to you guys. If you're listening to me, say amen here. In spite of her tragic situations, in spite of the negative circumstances, in spite of the fact that her brother had died four days ago and her, the bottom has fallen out, right? 
in spite of the emotional grief that she's going through, here's what you need to know. You need to know that Martha loved Jesus dearly and Martha believed in Jesus deeply. She didn't allow, there's an application here, she didn't allow her negative circumstance to weaken her faith. She didn't allow her confusion as to why Jesus delayed in his coming to weaken her faith. And so I think her heart was this, the heart behind her words. Lord, I don't know why you delayed, but I do know if you would have been here, you would not allowed my brother to die. You would have healed him just like you've healed hundreds of others. So again, hurt, maybe. Angry, I don't know. Confused, absolutely. But was she unbelieving? The answer is no way. She would not allow this to weaken her faith. The question is, not if, but when that difficult time hits you, that storm hits you in the future, are you gonna allow that to weaken your faith? How many of you guys have ever been confused about what God is doing? Okay, there's a few of us who are honest. Have you ever been confused about what, what's going on? Okay, and so are you gonna allow that confusion in the future when the bottom falls out of your life to weaken your faith? You say, Pastor, you shouldn't be saying those negative words. Yeah, I should. Because I'm a realist and we live in a fallen world. And by the way, Jesus Christ did not come to give you health, wealth, and prosperity. Jesus Christ came to rescue you and give you eternal life and abundant life. And that includes difficult times in this life. And so she refuses to allow this difficulty to shake her faith. And now look at what Jesus says to her. He says, look at verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, that's some powerful stuff right there. Here she comes, her eyes are filled with tears. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And he says to her, Martha, your brother's gonna rise again. Now you need to know that Martha right now was not thinking when Jesus said that, she did not understand his words as, Martha, your brother's gonna ra rise in just a few minutes from the dead. She's not getting that at all. And we know that that's not the way she took the words because of her reply in verse 24. Look at verse 24. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the what? The last day. And so Martha understood Jesus' statement as coming from like a guy like me doing a funeral for a Christian family whose believing loved one passed away. Hey, everybody, I want you to be encouraged. I know this, your hearts are breaking, but I want you to be encouraged because we have the sure hope of the resurrection in the future. And one day we're all going to be together forever and ever in our new bodies. And so, hey, don't let this shake your faith because the resurrection is a fact and it will absolutely happen. That's how she took his words, and as great as that truth is for believers, you need to know that Jesus actually meant something more. He meant something more than that. All right, so we're getting ready to get into John 11, verses 25 and 26. Ladies and gentlemen, the whole Bible, how many of you guys believe the whole thing has been breathed out by God in the original manuscripts? 
right? We believe that with all our hearts. This book is the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. We believe that with all of our hearts. But here's what you need to know. There are some passages in the scriptures that they're just more significant than others. And we're getting ready to get into two of those verses. By the way, these two verses, God gave them to me to help me um, through the difficulty when my dad passed in 2013. John 11, 25, and 26. So we're gonna hit the brakes, and we're gonna slow down. I really wanna make sure that you guys understand the meaning behind Jesus' words. And so, Martha says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said in verse 25, I am. Can you guys shout out those two words, I am? Go ahead. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now the Lord said, I am the resurrection and the life. And that is the fifth of the seven great I am statements recorded in the Gospel of John. And so we'll see those seven statements right here. You guys remember some of these. He said in chapter six, I am the bread of life. Chapter eight, I am the light of the world. He said in 10, I am the door. Also in 10, I am the good shepherd. Today, I am the resurrection and the life. My favorite, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Now, stop right there. <laughs> Man, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. What does that mean? That means that every other religion outside of biblical Christianity is wrong. That's what it means. Every cult that doesn't believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ is wrong. That's what it means. Ladies and gentlemen, please hear me right now. It's called the law of non-contradiction. What does that mean? That means that the opposite of true is false. So when a Muslim person says that Jesus Christ is not God's son, not God's eternal son, and they reject the Trinity, but the Christian says, no, Jesus is the eternal son of God, and they accept the Trinity, and they're both saying opposite things, here's what the law of non-contradiction demands. One person is telling the truth, the other person may not be deliberately lying, but they're saying something that's not true. Why? Because the opposite of true is false. So don't believe the nonsense that Christians and Muslims are gonna go hand in hand off into the sunset of eternity. It is not true. They say God doesn't have a son. They say Jesus didn't die on the cross. Well, good night, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for all of our sins in full, and he's the only hope of our salvation. And if anybody right now is thinking that's unloving, let me tell you something, that's the most loving thing that we could ever say to a Muslim person. Because they need to hear the truth. The most unloving thing we can say is, oh yeah, you know, you believe in Allah, you'll be fine. It's not true. There's one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
And thank God, God is giving Muslims dreams in places like Iran of Jesus Christ and they're coming to faith in Christ. He says, number seven, I am the true vine. Now, I don't know if you thought about it, but those statements right there, listen to this, it's so important. They are so strong, they are so exclusive, and they are so lofty. Think about this for a minute. For a mere mortal to say those seven things, that mere mortal would either be completely out of touch with reality or they would be lying through their teeth. But there is a third option. (laughs) C.S. Lewis talks about this in one of his books. If you've never read Lewis, you should. But I'm not quoting him exactly, but this is the basic what he said. Anyone who made such lofty claims about himself had to either be a madman, the devil of hell, or the son of God. That's where we get the famous phrase, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. The question is, what do you believe? You see, ladies and gentlemen, hear me. You got to make a choice. And if you're crossing your arms and thinking, I don't want to choose, just know that's a choice. Because your indecision is a decision. To stay neutral on Christ is a choice to reject consciously that he's the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life, and the true vine. So you got to make a choice. Please, I understand when some people are just not sure for a little while, but having that agnosticism in your life for your entire life is totally unacceptable to the Lord. He wants you to make a decision. He's calling you to make a decision. He's asking you, decide today about me. And so, Jesus says to Martha, your brother's gonna rise again. She responds, I know. I know he's gonna rise again at the resurrection on the last day. And then Jesus said, Martha, in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? All right, so what I wanna do is I wanna try to explain this by using an amplified paraphrase. This is just my way of explaining it. This is not what the text says, but I think, I really believe this is what Jesus meant. Right, so here's your amplified paraphrase of verse 25. When a person who believes in me dies physically, their body will come back to life at the resurrection of the dead. So you're right, Martha. But you also need to know this. I am the resurrection and the life. Shout out the next two words. Right now. Right now. I have the power to raise People. He's going to do it in a few minutes. <laughs> I have the power to raise people, but here's the application for us in the church age, the age of grace, to new spiritual life inwardly and presently. So his reply to Martha, he confirms that you're right. There is going to be a great resurrection at the end of time, at the end of the age. Ladies and gentlemen, hear me here. Daniel, I think it's chapter two, talks about in the, in, at the end of the age, there's going to be a resurrection of all humanity all humanity, some to eternal life, others not to annihilation, 
false doctrine, which some sadly evangelicals are accepting. Please don't accept that. It's not what the Bible teaches. Some to everlasting life, others to everlasting shame and contempt. Everybody's gonna be raised. What group will you be in at the end of the age? And so, he, he confirms her statement about the resurrection in the future, but then he also boldly declares that he is the resurrection and the life right now. And then, he says in verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Can somebody please just say hallelujah right now? <laughs> never die. Never die. Never die. And then he says, do you believe this? All right, here's an amplified paraphrase of verse 26. I'm just trying to explain what Jesus meant behind his words. And everyone who possesses eternal life right now because of their faith in me shall never die spiritually. They will always be alive. And that is an absolute amazing promise because if you're here today or watching online and you are a born again Christian, and by the way, that's a great term. I know our culture doesn't like it. I know they scorn it, but it comes from Jesus. And Jesus said in John 3, 3, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. So I love the term and I use the term just like I use the term saved that Paul uses in Romans and Jesus as well. And so if you are a born again Christian, raised to new spiritual life by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, when you, in the future, take your last breath, though your body dies, your spirit will continue to live on forever. Such good news. But I feel like our culture is sleeping spiritually and living for themselves. And life is all about me, myself, and I, and my health, and my wealth, and my prosperity, and me, 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 and what can you do for me? And we have consumer mindsets, and every conversation that we're involved in, what are we trying to do? We're trying to manipulate it so that we get something out of it. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the world, that is the flesh, and that is the devil. We need to stand up as Christians and be full of the Spirit and bear the fruit of the Spirit so that we have Jesus first, others second, and ourselves last. That's what God has called us to do. Your spirit is gonna live on, born again Christian, forever, even though your body dies. Paul confirmed this in his second letter to the uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. He says, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be uh, away from the body and at home with who? If you have the new King James or King James, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Like that. By the way, there's no purgatory. It does not exist. Listen, this is why we believe this is our sole authority for all matters of faith and practice. We do not take the teachings and declarations of church councils, tradition, church tradition, and put it on an equal level with the word of God, no. This alone, this is why there was a Protestant Reformation, thank God. Sola Scriptura, and nothing in this book says there's purgatory. Heaven or hell. And so, if the rapture doesn't occur in our lifetime, if you know the Lord, your body is, is gonna die. And by the way, there's nothing to be afraid of. 
Your body will die, but your spirit will live on forever. It will go, you will go to be with Jesus. How many of you guys ever heard of Lee Strobel? Raise your hand, please. Okay, that's good. I hope all of you get to know him. Uh, he wrote The Case for Christ, Case for Faith, Case for the Creator, Case for Miracles, Case of Heaven, um, and a whole lot of other things. A whole lot of other cases. <laughs> He's been busy. Super, super solid guy. I'm right now reading Case for Miracles, which I've talked about. Um, and then one of my future books will be The Case for Heaven. By the way, how many of you guys have seen the, the movie Case for Heaven? It's on Prime Video right now. Wow, one person, two, three, four, okay. Really encourage you to watch it this week. The Case for Heaven, what does he do? Lee Strobel, who used to work for the Chicago Tribune, used to be an atheist and now is a strong believer in Jesus Christ, uh, he investigated out-of-body experiences after clinical death. And so in the book, in the movie, he tells this story about a woman who was clinically dead. So she's in the hospital, she's on the hospital bed, they pronounce her dead. And she describes coming out of her body, her soul coming out of her body. And looking down and seeing the medical professionals trying to revive her. Then she describes how she floated up through the upper levels of the hospital, but then they brought her back to life, they brought her body back to life, and she re-entered her body. Later, they were talking to her. She said that while she was going up, she noticed, listen to this, on the third floor ledge of the hospital, there was a um, tennis shoe that was blue that had markings, make sure I don't fall over here, <laughs> markings on the toe area, and the shoelaces were tucked underneath it. She told them that, they went up, they found the shoe exactly as she described it. Okay, listen, we don't need, thank God for Lee Strobel, I thank God for him, right, but we don't need to study out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences to understand that we have a soul. You're not just a body. You're a body and a soul. You're not just material. You're material and immaterial. And ladies and gentlemen, though our body dies, our soul will live on forever in one of two places, heaven or hell. American pastor and theologian J. Dwight Pentecost, who's in heaven right now, he said this. Now this guy's a theologian, so I really want you to think about what he's saying here. It's a little deep, but it's not that hard to understand. The one who possesses eternal life can never die. Physical death cannot interrupt the continuation of eternal life. The one who possesses eternal life may experience the separation of soul from body, but can never experience the separation of his or her soul from who? God. And so when you take into consideration the complete teaching of the New Testament, and then you think about the order of events regarding the resurrection of our spirit, first, and then our body later, here is the conclusion that you come to, right here. We'll put it up on the screen. Here's the, the conclusion. The resurrection of the redeemed, right? Well, a little while ago, Pastor Reagan and Jordan and the team led us in, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Okay, so if you've been re redeemed by the blood of the lamb, just say amen. amen. All right, so this is your story and my story by the grace of God. 
In our BC days, our spirits were dead in trespasses and sins. That's Ephesians 2.1. And the Holy Spirit drew us. Otherwise, we never would have come to Christ. You gotta understand that. Nobody wakes up one day and says, I'm gonna believe today in Jesus. <laughs> Doesn't happen. The Holy Spirit drew us and we heard the gospel. And with his help, because nobody can do this on their own, we turned to Christ in repentance and faith. And at that moment, he quickened us and raised us to new life, shout out the word, spiritually on the inner man or woman. And then in the future, our body will eventually die, unless the rapture happens. But our spirit will immediately enter the presence of the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And then, last point, at the resurrection, our spirits will re-enter our resurrected bodies, and death will forever be swallowed up in victory. That's some good news right there. You've heard me say it before. You've heard me say it before. Our future as born-again Christians is so bright, we gotta put on sunglasses in order to look into it. But here's the problem. We're so caught up in this life. We're so caught up in the mundane, the mundane things that, that we do. And we're not even thinking about our eternal inheritance, which Christ paid for with his blood. But here's what I know. I know God wants you to think about it. I know he wants you to meditate on it. He wants you to prepare for it because we're gonna be over there a whole lot longer than we're gonna be here. Paul put it this way, writing to born-again Christians. He said, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Those of you who woke up this morning and you're getting out of bed and your back all of a sudden tightened up and you went, ow, just know you got a new body on the way. An imperishable body. An immortal body. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. I love this. Paul's a preacher. He's not just a teacher. He says death. He's talking to death right now. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? He's kind of taunting death. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? He's calling her to a decision telling you, you gotta decide. Do you believe this, Martha? And Martha then makes a beautiful affirmation of faith. I love this. I'm looking forward to meeting Martha someday. She said in verse 27, look at this. Yes, Lord, I believe. By the way, that's not just intellectual assent, that is personal trust. She had a relationship with Jesus. She depended on Jesus. She had faith in Jesus, trust in Jesus. She leaned on Jesus. You get the point. In the original Greek, the word for belief. Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Woo! 
who is coming into the world. I love the fact that when Martha was at her lowest point, she refused to allow her negative circumstance to weaken her faith. I love the fact that Martha, at her lowest point, refused to allow her crazy roller coaster of emotions to weaken her faith. I love the fact that Martha, as I've said before, wasn't a thermometer, she was a thermostat. She didn't allow the outside to dictate her temperature. She dictated the temperature based on her faith in Jesus Christ. I love the fact that Martha stood strong when it hurt. Again, here's the application. Are you gonna stay strong when it hurts? We're still in this fallen world. There's still a lot of tragedy, a lot of difficult circumstances. Now, I I know we talk about, man, thank God the storm didn't hit us, right? But the storm hit a lot of people. And there's a lot of people right now who are hurting and they're devastated. So does God not love them? No, he loves them. He wants us to step up and help them. Um, You can choose through organizations like Samaritan's Purse or something else, but he wants us to let our light shine in the darkness. But, but I love the fact that Martha stood strong, and so not if, but when, I'll say it again, when that storm comes in your life, I pray that it, you don't allow it to weaken your faith. I pray that you'll look at one of the heroes of the faith, Martha, and that you'll follow her example by saying, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. It says in verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Verse 31, when the Jews who were with Mary in the house, consoling her, that's a beautiful thing. If you know somebody's hurting, make sure you go and just be with them. They saw Mary rise quickly and go out, so they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she, look at this, fell at his feet. That's usually where you find Mary. She's at the feet of Jesus. I'll talk a lot about that next week. Saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She says the same thing Martha said. And no doubt, Martha and Mary had been saying that same phrase over and over since they buried their brother four days earlier. Man, if Jesus had just been here, Lazarus would still be with us. And now it's gonna get really emotional in our Bibles. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. Now I have to say I was stunned this week because I had forgotten this from past studies to be reminded of the emotion of Jesus here. I'll explain it in a moment. But he looks and sees Mary and her friends weeping and he's deeply moved in his spirit and he's greatly troubled. Very, very emotionally charged scene. Let's look at the variety of emotions in the Greek. If you go to Strong's Greek Concordance, I'm sorry, Greek Lexicon, you can access it through the BLB, Blue Letter Bible. Here's what you find out. Mary and her friends were weeping in the Greek. That just means to mourn and lament. But here's what you need to know. In that culture, they were wailing loudly. That's the culture. 
How many of you guys have ever been to a funeral where they're wailing loudly? Yeah, it shakes you to your core. And so Jesus, now this is what stunned me this week, was deeply moved. In the Greek, that word there, it means to snort in like a horse, to be very angry, to be moved with indignation. This is fascinating to me. Mary and her friends, right, they're mourning, they're lamenting their loss, they're weeping, they're wailing out loud. And Jesus sees this, and what happens? Like a mad horse, he snorts, and he becomes indignant, angry, furious. Jesus is furious in our Bibles, but don't misunderstand. He is not furious at Mary. He is not furious at Martha. He is not furious at the friends who are weeping and mourning, no. 10,000 times no. Jesus was not furious at people. Jesus was furious at the devil. He's furious at Satan. He's furious at death. And so I think that Jesus probably thought about the Garden of Eden when he created Adam and Eve perfectly. And he put them in a perfect world. (laughs) Think about this. This is what you call a biblical worldview, by the way and not the nonsense of secular humanism. The truth is, Jesus, God, Yahweh, created Adam and Eve perfectly, put them in a perfect world that was filled with love and harmony and joy and peace. A world that knew nothing of pain or sorrow or disease or death, but then the evil one entered the scene and the evil one deceived Eve. And because Eve was deceived and she ate the forbidden fruit, in disobedience, and Adam was deliberately disobedient. Ladies and gentlemen, everything changed. It's called the fall of mankind. The moment that they ate the forbidden fruit, you need to know that they immediately died spiritually. Immediately they were cut off from God. They immediately died spiritually and they began to die physically. They began to grow old and eventually they died physically. So when you go to the home today and you look in the mirror and you see that wrinkle, you can thank Adam and Eve. Because by one man, sin entered the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And by the way, I'm joking, because if we were there, we would have done the same thing Adam and Eve did. Okay, and so here's what you gotta understand. It's called the fall of mankind. And not only that, but at that point, Satan became, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, right around there, the prince of the power of the air. Now, what does that mean for us practically today? Well, how many of you guys are sons and daughters of Adam? Raise your hand. I'm gonna wait till every hand is raised in the building. Is there any aliens in here? (laughs) Okay, so what does that mean? That means, Ephesians 2.1, mankind is dead in our trespasses and sins. When we're born, we're born with a sin nature. The Catholic Church calls it original sin. Right. When we are born, we're born with a sin nature. I've told you a thousand times, if you don't believe me, go to our nursery. See those two two-year-olds right now that are duking it out. Sorry, mom, I don't wanna scare you. You're gonna be like, I gotta go get my two-year-old. But no, they, someone takes the toy of your two-year-old Watch out. Did you teach them that? No, it's in them. See, this is called the biblical worldview. It's called the fall. This is, by the way, 
next door in our school. We're trying to teach our kids not just to have an excellent education, excellent academically, but also to have a biblical worldview as well so they can see the world as they get older and go on through the lens of the scriptures. And so what you gotta understand is that mankind is dead in their trespasses and sins and is desperate need of forgiveness, but also, this is a stunning verse, 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What? You should memorize that one too. 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You say, I don't believe it. All right, let me challenge you. Go home and read the news. 99% of it, is it good news or bad news? Yeah, maybe 1% good. Why? Because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Because everybody is born with a sin nature and chooses to sin. And physically speaking, pain, because of the fall, pain, sorrow, disease, and death has entered our world and it's still our inheritance today as the descendants of Adam. All right, enough bad news. How many are glad that the second Adam came? Yeah. How many, of you, how many of you are glad a redeemer came? Yeah, I'm gonna wait till everybody's clapping because he deserves our praise. He deserves our worship. He did not leave us alone. He came because he loves us and he wanted to rescue us. That's God's heart for you, that's God's heart for me. But as long as we have this nonsensical, humanistic, secular worldview, we don't even see our need for him. Because everybody's born inherently good. And if there's a heaven, I'll go there because I'm a good person. Whatever. No, we're lost. We're dead in our trespasses and sins and we need the Redeemer. And so why did he come? John told us in his first letter, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. And ladies and gentlemen, he did it, and he's doing it, and he will do it. He did it through his virgin birth, his sinless life, his vicarious substitutionary death, where he, as your substitute, took your sin and my sin and his body on the tree, and he paid for our sin debt in full. He did it through his bodily resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. He's gonna do it when he comes back his second coming, and when he establishes his millennial kingdom, and when he reigns in a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever and ever. Jesus Christ is right now, has in the past, and will destroy the works of the devil, and that is good news. That's great news. And praise God, at the end of the millennial kingdom, he's gonna grab that sucker and throw him in the lake of fire forever. Finally, praise God. Finally. You say, Pastor, you better be careful. He's coming after you. Listen, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. But you gotta understand this. The king is coming soon. And if you will turn, you gotta make a choice. If you'll turn to him in genuine repentance and faith, he will raise you on the inner man or inner woman. He'll forgive all your sins. He'll seal you to the day of redemption. And then not only that, not only will he raise you inwardly, later on, he'll raise you outwardly. And he'll give you an immortal, indestructible body. 
I am so looking forward to it. On that great resurrection day, God is gonna join your perfect spirit dwelling with Jesus in heaven with your ashes, no, whatever's left, DNA, whatever. God's God, he can do it. He's going to give you an imperishable, indestructible body and he will join the two together and you will be body and soul, perfect, indestructible, immortal, forever and ever. I can't wait. I can't wait. My prayer is that I'll be six foot eight, <laughs> 220, bulging biceps. My dad, you know, my dad, when he was a younger man, he had these like softballs in his arms and I was like, man, how come I didn't get that? Anyway, I'm gonna have longer hair. It's gonna be great. I'm gonna fly it back before I take off. I gotta go reign over my five cities. You'll get 10, I'm sure. You have no idea, if, if you don't study the Bible, you have no idea what I'm talking about right now. But the Bible is an exciting book and you should dream about the future. You should dream about the future. Verse 34, and he said, where have you laid Lazarus? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And now Jesus wept. I love it. He is not just fully God, he is fully man. He became a human being, he can relate to you and your sorrow. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? There's always a critic, right, in the crowd. But I want you to look at Jesus' emotion in the Greek. Again, from the Strong's Greek lexicon, access to the Blue Letter Bible, the word wept is a different Greek word, it just means to shed tears. And so when the Lord sees everybody loudly weeping, wailing, crying, right, first he gets ticked off at the devil, and then he enters into their pain, and he weeps. What a savior, right? Now this word is different. He's not loudly wailing like them. He's just kind of like entering their sorrow, quietly shedding tears. And so as a human being, Jesus could relate to them, application, and he's still a human being. He's fully God, fully man. He can relate to you. And I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know if maybe you're in a trial, coming out of a trial, or getting ready to go into a trial. But here's what you need to know. Jesus has been there, done that, and has a t-shirt. He was here, living in this fallen world. As a man, as a human being, he cried. And so you gotta let him enter into your pain. How many of you guys know there's no comforter like Jesus? The peace that he gives that surpasses all understanding. The joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. And so let him, he's just a prayer away. Let him come, let him minister to you, let him encourage you. And then just let him have his way in the trial to conform you into the image of Christ. Don't get mad, don't get confused, don't get hurt. Keep like Martha, keep your faith in Christ. And we know Mary too because of what Mary does in, verse, in chapter 12 next week. All right, so what I'm gonna do now is I'm just gonna read verses 38 through 44 and then I'll make some concluding comments. So stay with me to the end, but this was such a beautiful flow here, I didn't wanna interrupt it. All right, so verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again, or can you see him? He's standing outside of Lazarus' tomb. 
and he's ticked off again. That's the Greek word. He's angry, he's furious. And Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Classic first century AD tomb. Jesus said, verse 39, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. King James, he stinketh. You know, you saw that, right? <laughs> verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he begins to pray, Father. Why is he addressing um, God as Father? Because he wants everybody to know that he's the Son. I'll say it again, I, I, I wanna say it every week because we have visitors. We do not believe in three gods, as some Muslims would accuse us of. We believe in one God. Can you say one God, please? Christianity is a monotheistic religion. We believe in one God, eternally existent through, uh, sorry, we believe in one God, eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is what the progressive revelation of the New Testament teaches. So he's going to his Father, and he wants everybody to know that what he's gonna about to do is the will of the Father. Father, verse 41 at the end, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. So he's praying publicly, and by the way, sometimes it is correct to preach through your prayers to people. Jesus did it. I said this on account of people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. There's the reason why. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to him, to them, unbind, unbind him and let him go. Can you guys imagine, go there right now. There you are, and you see Jesus, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 Jews, and they're crying, and they're wiping their tears, Take away the stone, and then Lazarus, come out. And I guarantee those words from the Son of God sent chills up and down the spines of everybody there. And what happened next? What happened next is obedience. <laughs> Lazarus comes shuffling out. You say, why shuffling? Because he's wrapped in linen strips, anointed with lots of herbs and spices or whatever they do back then. And so he says, unbind him and let him go. How many of you guys believe that Jesus has incredible power and authority? Yeah. Yeah. Now, very important you get this part. Lazarus's resurrection was not the same kind of resurrection in the same sense as the resurrection at the end of the day, at the end of the age. Why? Because at the end of the age, that resurrection that all true believers and Lazarus will participate in, at that point, we will receive new, indestructible, immortal bodies. Lazarus, in John 11, was raised back to mortal life. And guess what? He's gonna die again. So how do you think he feels about all this? Jesus, at the end of the gospel, one of the gospels, tells the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. 
no soul sleep, as soon as you take your last breath, because he exercised repentance and faith in Christ, you're gonna be with me in paradise. So where did Lazarus go when he died four days earlier? Paradise. Some call it Abraham's bosom. And can you imagine being in paradise, hanging out with, I don't know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and then hearing, Lazarus, come out! And you're like, gotta go. (laughs) And he comes shuffling out. You think he wants to be there? He's back in this. He comes shuffling out, right? And I can see, I, I know I'm adding to the story, yes. Don't send me emails. But I can see Mary running up, taking off the headcloth. Lazarus, and I can see him crying, not tears of joy, tears of sorrow. And he's like, I love you, sis, but I was in paradise, and what is going on right now? No, no, yeah, I'd added some stuff there, but it's all based on biblical teaching, because he did go to paradise, and he did come back, and now he's raised to mortal life, and he's gonna have to get sick and die again. So why did Jesus do this miracle? He told us in his prayer to the Father, verse 42, I knew that you always hear me, so he's been praying about this for two days in Perea, about raising Lazarus, and he asks the Father to do it, and God says, Father says yes, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe, there's your reason, that you sent me. John put it this way at the end of his gospel, here's your last Verse, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written, right, the eight great miraculous signs of the Christ. These are written so that you may, what's the word? Believe, not intellectual assent. Personal trust, intellectual assent, yeah, but also personal trust that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so in closing, I just wanna say, the reason Jesus did this is, number one, the disciples, it's gonna strengthen their faith because they're gonna carry on the work after he goes to the right hand of the Father. Martha and Mary, it's gonna strengthen their faith because they're, gonna have to carry on the work after he goes back to the Father. Uh, It's gonna spark faith in thousands of Jews and later Gentiles because they're gonna hear about the story. It's a historical event, not a fairy tale. And then number four, I think the most important reason is that the resurrection of Lazarus is just a beautiful picture of our born-again Christian, our spiritual resurrection, and one day our physical, immortal, bodily resurrection. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.